I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are just joining us this morning or haven't been here in a while, we are walking through 1 Peter with the hope of continuing into 2 Peter after we're finished with this. Previously, Peter has been calling those who have been born again to live differently. I mentioned it this morning. He said, be holy as I am holy. There's only one way for that to happen, guys. And that's because Jesus Christ has changed you. That's the only way that we're even close to reaching the holiness that God demands. And so specifically, he has called Christians to put away certain things. That's what we looked at last week. Jason, or a couple of weeks ago, Jason had on this, this old choir garment. And was it last week? Okay. And, uh, and, and Paul, or Peter rather, uses that same kind of analogy when he says to put off certain things. It's like you're taking off this coat or this choir or baptismal robe and put it aside. Take it off because things like hypocrisy and envy and slander and malice and deceit, the things that he lists at the beginning of chapter 2, those things have no place in the life of a Christian. They, they do not identify God's people. And then he talks about how we should respond to the word of God. And he equates Christians to babies, not, not in a negative sense, but just, in, just how a baby craves the milk to survive. Christians crave the word of God to survive. It's the same way. So those who have experienced God's goodness, Peter uses the word tasted, the goodness of the Lord. Those who experience it, tasted it, they desire it more and more. And they desire to be around people who desire it more and more. So today we turn to verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. And again, believers are being told to put away the old self that's ruled by selfishness and then to grow up into salvation. And this is this is how this works. Peter actually uses a, a, an odd analogy, as you'll see as we read. So look at verses 4 through the first part of verse 8. We'll read that together, and then I'll ask the Lord's blessing on his word and our time together in the word. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Would you pray with me? Lord, what we're talking about this morning is Christ as the cornerstone. And there is certainly an aspect of this, just as we've read, that is a stumbling block to many. Not only in, in Peter's day, Lord, but in 2022. Jesus is someone who a lot of people trip over. And there's a reason for that, Lord, but there's also a reason that people can be saved, that hope 
can be drilled down deep into our hearts and our souls through Jesus. When we get over, when we step across that stumbling stone and trust Him as our Savior, as the cornerstone of everything that we are and believe in. And so, Lord, uh, do that work in us. Convince us of that. Help us to see Christ as that that foundation as we sang that is not like sifting sand, but is firm and lasting. Thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, so I don't, you know, we're, maybe if you've read the Bible or if you're familiar with this kind of context, maybe the idea of a living stone, it doesn't seem that strange to you. But if if you never knew of the Bible, if you never heard this sort of thing before, for somebody to talk about a stone that's alive is kind of weird, isn't it? It's sort of a strange analogy. Uh, how many students in the room are taking biology? Anybody, anybody in a biology class? Okay, how many of you all have taken a biology class? Liz has got both hands up, so you must have really enjoyed biology class, Liz. What is biology the study of? Life. Bio, life, okay? Let's, let's continue on because I think we need some help with this. What is the study of plants called? Study of plants is called botany. Who knows the word for the study of animals? Zoo, that's an easy one, right? Zoology. How about the study of the human body? Anatomy. And to our point today, what's the name of the study of rocks? Geology. Lynn was excited about geology. Now, it's my understanding that geology and biology cover very different topics. One deals with living organisms, and the other one deals with a solid mass of geological materials. That is not alive. Okay? So rocks are classified, and I did a little research on this this week. Rocks are classified as non-living things. That's good. Hopefully that's something that we can agree on. Okay? Non-living thing. Rocks are formed. They're not born. Rocks can sort of get bigger if you consider sediment and that sort of thing, but they don't grow in a sense of other organisms. Rocks don't move. They don't eat. They don't reproduce. They don't breathe. They don't produce waste. They don't move on their own. And rocks certainly don't talk or think, right? They're non-living things. And so they don't have life. They aren't made up of living cells. So Peter says, he speaks of coming to Jesus like coming to a living stone. And that's just kind of weird. It's just unusual. It seems a little odd. But if you think about it, Peter's not the first guy to make this analogy. You can turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 40. Luke chapter 19, verse 40. Again, Peter's not the first guy to draw this same kind of analogy. Many disciples here, not just the 12, but a lot of people in Jerusalem were praising Christ as the Messiah King. He was coming in on the donkey, riding in triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And people were seeing this. I think maybe some of their Old Testament knowledge was coming about, recognizing him on the back of a donkey. And they're saying, Hosanna, 
they're, they're singing this, this song of praise. And the Pharisees look to Jesus and they say, hey, buddy, you need to stop them. This isn't right. And this is what Jesus says in response. Luke 19, verse 40. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Peter's not the first person to talk about a living stone or a stone that can do things that normally only people can do. Jesus talks about it. The Pharisees had been spiritually blind, but even they knew rocks don't talk. Rocks don't sing. They're not alive. And so Jesus tells them, he says, you know what? God could make those rocks cry out if he wanted to, if he needed to. He could make them cry out and make them alive and raise them up to praise him. And so Peter says, well, when a person comes to Christ, they come to a stone that is alive. And I think it's interesting that the word here, stone, is used because Peter may be more equipped than a lot of people to talk about rocks. Maybe you, you know why. Jesus renamed Peter to a name that meant stone, little stone, little rock. He renamed Simon Cephas or, or Peter, which is Greek for the word Petros, which literally means little stone. So Peter's got some knowledge in this area. Think about Matthew 16. So Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. Jesus challenges the disciples. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with a word Jesus later says didn't come from him, came from heaven. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, you're exactly right. Peter, and he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell, he says, will never even be able to overcome it. Now, that text in Matthew 16 isn't specifically clear whether he's talking about Peter being the rock, that confession of Peter being the rock, but there's no denying Peter's involvement and leadership in the establishment of the early church. God used him greatly. It was Peter who first proclaimed the gospel on the day of Pentecost, if you'll remember, his incredible sermon there. He was also the first person to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So in a sense, Peter was a, a rock or a foundation of the early church. But it would be a mistake, I think, to say that Peter is the foundation of the church or its head. Time and time again, the New Testament scriptures make clear that Jesus is the foundation that Jesus is the head. And in your notes, I've got a, hand, a half dozen or so passages that, that kind of flesh that out. In verse 4 of second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses the word rock or stone, but it's not the same word that Jesus used when referring to him in Matthew 16. Peter's word that he uses in 1 Peter 2 is lithos, which means stone, but more importantly and more specifically, a stone that is a stumbling block. It's a stone that people trip over. Someone stumbles over. And this makes a lot of sense when you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he starts talking about some other things that we're going to cover, but he, he, he talks about him being uh, a stumbling block. The stone is 
a stone that the people rejected, that others turn away from, even despise. The stone that many people run from because they stumble over it. Believers who've been regenerated from within by the Spirit of God, they run to that stone. Men reject this living stone, but Peter says it's chosen and it's precious in the sight of God. That's what verse 4 says. R.C. Sproul says, What is repulsive to us in our fallen condition is considered precious by God himself. So these words uh, that, that Peter uses here to describe this living stone, he says he's chosen and he's precious. And these are words that Peter has already used. Just glance back to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He's already said these words. Those verses say, With the precious blood of Christ, so there's the precious blood, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown, chosen, before the foundation of the world. So he's used these words, precious and chosen, to identify Jesus already. And then he says, as you come to this chosen and precious and living stone, you also are like living stones. Being built, verse 5 says, into a spiritual house. So Christian, if you're a believer sitting here this morning listening today, not only is Jesus a living stone, you are too. Not only is Christ living, chosen, and precious in God's sight, but so is anyone who participates in his life and is identified with him. If you're in Christ, that's you. You're a living stone. So the Apostle Paul, I find this really interesting, Paul refers at length to the church as a body of Christ. Right, Several places he even talks about individual body parts. And he does that to explain that there's different roles in the body, there's different parts of the body that do different things, but it's all part of the same entity, the same group, the same thing. They're all different, but they're all necessary. And in doing that, Paul's making it really clear that the church is not a building. It's a people. Paul says that the church is not a building. It's a people. But now, now Peter kind of switches it. And he calls Christians living stones in a building. But he says the building isn't made up of, of bricks and mortar and drywall and, and carpet. It's not the kind of building that Peter is talking about. He says it's made up of living stones of people who are these living stones. So the church, stick with this, the church is alive because the foundation is alive. And the walls are alive. Everything that makes it up is alive. Like living stones. The church is made up of living stones in order to be something. Look at verse 5. In order to be a holy priesthood. And this holy priesthood was supposed to do something to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So think about the Old Testament with me. What was the primary purpose or job of the priests of the Old Testament? Well, they were to offer sacrifices. There's lots of passages that explain in very great detail the job of the priests and specific things that they were to do and not to do. They were to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of their own sin, behalf of the sin of the people of Israel. 
And this was all according to the sacrificial system that God had set in place according to the Old Covenant. Physical sacrifices were often given as atonement for sin. And so sometimes, and I know the group going through Leviticus has studied this, sometimes it was a grain offering, sometimes it was a a flesh, a blood offering. Mostly it was that. If you fast forward to a, a very heavily influenced Old Testament book into a New Testament book in the book of Hebrews, we see that Christ was the complete, satisfactory, perfect, and final sacrifice for the atonement of sin. So what Peter is talking about here is not that you as a believer would go home and offer an animal as a sacrifice for your sin. He's not trying to revamp this Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Christians offer a different kind of sacrifice now because they are a holy priesthood, a spiritual priesthood, one that's being made more and more holy through putting off their old self that we talked about last week, through their obedience to the truth by the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf and by trusting in him by faith. So Christians who were once as dead as rocks but are now alive and being built into a holy priesthood are supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices. First way that we function as spiritual priests is by offering the sacrifices of praise to God, which is worship, which comes from the psalm that I read this morning. Now, some Sundays you come to worship with burdens from the week on your back, don't you? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it to be true because I come the same way. We come into worship with burdens of the week that are weighing us down. And whether that's a hurting marriage or a division in our family, a difficult financial problem, uh, a tough situation at work, or anything else that can make it seem really almost impossible to actually worship. This is why I think Hebrews thirteen fifteen refers to this as a sacrifice of praise. To sacrifice. Now the truth is, praise doesn't always have to cost us something. How many of you are dog owners? So if you have a dog, you've to some degree probably tried to train that dog to, to sit, stay, you know, not bark, not jump up on people, not do its business in the house or whatever. Uh, you, you try to get it to do what it's supposed to do. Some of you, especially if you've got kids, you're throwing a ball to them, and what do they do? They go and they grab it, and if you train them well, they'll bring them back and drop it. You don't have to wrestle it away from, from them. But when the dog does that, when you throw the ball and the dog brings it back, what, what do you say? Good boy. Good job. You give them praise. But it didn't cost you anything, did it? You just tossed a ball. There's no personal sacrifice given. I think it can be the same for us and God. Not that we're a dog and, and he's the owner, but just in a sense that when we feel like uh, he's blessed us or he's helped us or protected us or whatever, we usually find that it's easy to come to church and to sing and to worship, to praise him. Even though it's not much of a sacrifice, Now, we looked in the book of Psalms and we saw over and over that it's right to praise God in those moments. When life is good, praise the Lord. 
but it doesn't really cost us anything. It's not really a sacrifice. But Psalms also taught us that there are times when God feels a million miles away, when it seems like the darkness of the night will never leave. Life is hard when we can't see his goodness in the shadows and when it seems like our situation is just going from bad to worse and praise and worship in those times might be the, one of the most difficult things you can try and muster. Might in fact be the last thing on our minds in those times. And to praise God in those moments, you better believe that requires some sacrifice. Some personal sacrifice. It takes an act of the will to lay all of our all, everything that we are on an altar before the Lord, before a God we don't always understand. When we bring a sacrifice of praise, we choose to believe that even though life is not going as we think it should, we still choose to believe that God is good and God has not changed and God can be trusted. So when we were singing this morning, it perhaps you found it really hard to sing. Maybe you didn't feel like it at all. Maybe you've had a really hard week. You're in the midst of a hard situation. Maybe for you it was easy. Maybe the Lord has been good to you and it's been obvious and it was easy to sing these songs this morning. Peter challenges Christians to offer spiritual sacrifices to God regardless of our circumstances. Because as you well know, circumstances change. But God does not change. His promises never do. I think there's something else in First Peter chapter 2 that Peter mentions it's important. Notice that the sacrifices that Christians offer aren't accepted by God because of the virtue of the person offering them. Now, some people in the Old Testament, they attempted to offer sacrifices either according to their own merit, according to their own design, their own way, what they thought was right or best, and God was not pleased. And there's evidences of people dying in those situations. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, God says that those kinds of worship, that kind of worship or offering, he says, is an abomination to him. It's pretty serious language. So the thing that makes any offering that we bring to God acceptable and precious in his sight is not because we are so good, but because they are offered, look at verse 5, through Jesus. Without Christ, any worship that we offer would be unacceptable to God. Peter continues with this metaphor, but he kind of goes back to the idea of Christ as a stumbling block. And he quotes, more or less, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Let me read that for you. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation, whoever believes in him will not be in haste. That's what Isaiah says. Do we see some influence in verse 4 as well here? Peter isn't teaching that every believer rises in glory to achieve the same status as Jesus himself, though. There are some groups that teach that that happens, but I don't think Scripture bears that out. Christians are living stones like Christ, but we are not the same as Jesus in that way. We are not perfect like he is. Christians are living stones, but Jesus is the living cornerstone. So I think Peter's talking about a foundation 
here. Now, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, that this foundation that I think Peter is referencing actually does lay on not just Jesus Christ, but the apostles and the prophets. He says this, Ephesians 2, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like maybe Peter and Paul knew each other and were friends. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, all had a part in laying the foundation that our faith now is built on. But what have we been saying during our time studying Old Testament books? Ecclesiastes, the book of Psalms, others that we've looked at. We've said that Old Testament scriptures are always doing what? They're pointing forward to Jesus. They're always pointing forward to Christ. So the foundation is already set. The revelation of Christ is finished because scripture sufficiently reveals Jesus for who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the last word, brothers and sisters. Notice again who is at the center, or or maybe we say at the corner. Who's the cornerstone? It's Jesus himself. It's not Paul. It's it's not Peter. It's Jesus. Now, without going too far into the the building analogy, you guys understand that the cornerstone was at the corner of, of two walls, and it was the most important, almost linchpin on the foundation that was laid on top of it. If that cornerstone wasn't set right, your whole structure was in danger. And so Peter's very specific. Christ is the cornerstone. And then he quotes another passage from Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 14, where the Lord of hosts himself says that he would become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. This is, this is who Jesus was going to be. Paul actually quotes that exact same text in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. So I think there's something to this idea here. And if we think about that story that we mentioned uh, from Luke 19, where the disciples were upset that people were singing praises to God and Jesus responded, saying that the stones would cry out if they were silent. Certainly this helps us understand that the Jews stumbled over Jesus, which was Paul's point as well in Romans 9. They just couldn't seem to get past his, his lowly upbringing. What do you mean you're the Messiah? You were born in a manger. They couldn't get past his, his lack of education, his lack of royal birth. They stumbled at the kind of company he kept, didn't they? His lack of desire to rule over Rome. They stumbled at, and ultimately they stumbled at his claim to be the great I am. They couldn't accept it. They refused to believe him. They refused to believe him for righteousness for life, and ultimately they refused to believe him for salvation. And because they tripped over Christ in this way, they couldn't reach high enough in their own ability to attain the righteousness that was required to be justified from their sin. 
The same thing happens today, right? What are the three things that we're told never to bring up at a dinner party? You guys know what I'm... Okay, religion, politics. Remember the other one? Money. I've heard it said money. So money, politics, and religion. Now, in some ways, there's some wisdom to that. But I think that kind of proves what Peter is getting at here. You start you start talking about the bad policies of our current administration, and you're likely to find somebody who disagrees with you. Start explaining why you're behind on your car payment and you can't pay your mortgage, and people kind of get a little uncomfortable, right? Start talking about money and kind of gets uncomfortable. You start talking about how you've been saved from the fires of a hell by a man who shed his blood on a cross and then raised from the grave three days later, people really start getting uncomfortable. That can be really divisive in our culture. It's no surprise that people might trip over Jesus. If the Spirit doesn't breathe new life into your dead heart, it'll never beat to the rhythm of saving grace. It has to be a work of the Spirit. So though this chief cornerstone is rejected by the disobedient and unbelieving, he is precious to those who believe. So who is Jesus to you? See, a stumbling block that you just can't quite wrap your head around? You can't quite get past? Or is he precious to you? Is he your rock? Is he your cornerstone? Look at verse 7. I'm going to read it from a couple of different translations for help in understanding it. The New King James Version of verse 7 says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. The New Living Translation says, Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. These things are undeniably true for the believer. The ESV Version, which I read from, says, So the honor is for you who believe. So, What's he talking about? Well, it's the honor of being a stone in the foundation of his church. The honor of having our souls saved through the blood of the Lamb. The honor of becoming a son or a daughter of Almighty God. Interestingly, Charles Spurgeon, who I quote from often, he preached his first sermon at the age of 16, and he used 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, as his text. He preached his first sermon at the age of 16, and it was just in a small village to a small group of, of poor people. And I don't know if it was sometime later or when it was, but when asked why he chose that text, this is what he said. He said, Christ was precious to my soul, and I was in the flush of my youthful love, and I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. This was 1850 when he said that. He asked these questions. He said, is Jesus precious to your soul? It's a question I would ask you this morning. Is Jesus precious to your soul? Spurgeon goes on to say, remember, your condition before God depends on your answer to that. You believe if he is precious to you. And you are condemned already because you believe not on the Son of God. That's how Jesus said it when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let me read what Jesus says to you. You'll recognize the first part of this for sure. He says in John 3, starting in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, that it might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I've said already this morning that if the spirit doesn't breathe new life into your dead heart, your heart will never beat to the rhythm of saving grace. It'll, you'll never know God truly for who he is, Jesus truly for who he is. The part that makes Jesus so precious to those who believe is this. Jesus allowed his heart to stop beating so that your heart might beat. This verse says, John 3.17 says, Jesus came and died, not to condemn the world, but to save the world that you might be saved. So if if you're listening this morning and you've never been saved, Jesus has come to make that happen. And you can be. Believe in him and you will never face condemnation, both in this life and in the life to come because Romans 8 chapter 1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, is Jesus precious to you? Is he the precious cornerstone of your life? If he is, you'll be able to offer sacrifices of praise. It may not always be the first thing that jumps to your mind, but as a part of the living body of Christ made up of living stones, a royal priesthood, those are the kind of sacrifices that we're going to offer. And you can do that today through faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I take so much joy in those words of Jesus because we're all in Nicodemus' place to some degree asking questions. How can this be, Lord? How could I be born again? And Jesus responds by saying that what it takes is belief. Whoever believes in me and him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, Lord, there may be some who are listening who have never believed. I pray that they would set aside their pride this morning, they would humble themselves in repentance and through faith and be magnificently saved. Lord, that's only because you have poured new life into a dead heart. And so I pray that you would do that as, as Jason prayed earlier, Lord, that your word and Jesus himself would be that hammer that smashes the heart of stone. And transforms it into a heart of flesh that is moldable to your will and your spirit. Lord, you have to be the one that makes that happen. Because in our own flesh, we will rebel every time. And so overcome our desire for sin. And save us by the love and precious blood of Christ. That's still shed for sinners today. In your name we pray. Amen.